I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I want you to come back with me to about 1976. I was a 14-year-old kid backpacking on a 50-mile trek through the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And the very first night there, our group of Boy Scouts took shelter under a rocky outcropping. I remember this so well. We slept that night on a dry, sandy bed, just right for our sleeping bags. We were trying to wait out a storm that night, and that's why we were under that cliff, that rocky outcropping I told you about. We had left the south rim of the Grand Canyon earlier that day. There was a foot of new snowfall up there. And as we dropped down into the canyon, dropping significantly in elevation, the snow turned to rain, and we were very glad to find a dry place. Well, I slept well, and when I awoke to the sight of a scorpion about three feet away from my face, I felt, I'll just call it terror. Shall I call it? Uh, Yeah, that's what it was for me. The whole experience would have been ideal, I thought, right up to that moment. Nobody had prepared me for the possibility of scorpions. And apparently that sandy bed was just as appealing a hideout for scorpions as for us Boy Scouts. I'll never forget that moment. Um, Not just because of the shock and surprise, but because it's the only time in my entire life that I've actually seen a scorpion in the wild. Now, our next guest is probably going to tell me that I should get out more because if I did get out more and if I went to the right place at the right time, chances are I would encounter a lot more scorpions. And she loves them. Lauren Esposito is with us. Esposito is assistant curator and holds the post of Schlinger Chair of Arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. She studies evolution in scorpions, in spiders, and creatures called whip spiders. Don't know what those are. Maybe we'll learn. She's passionate in her advocacy for the kind of science that's going to lead to better informed decisions in all the human interventions we undertake in the world around us if we plan to enable present-day organisms, the flora and the fauna, to continue to adapt and evolve. She's also deeply committed to increasing global access to science education and science tools, and that has led her to co-found a nonprofit for science education called Islands and Seas, as well as founding the visibility campaign 500 Queer Scientists. We'll take the opportunity to learn about that campaign towards the end of our conversation today. Lauren Esposito, welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you so much. You know, I've learned two very surprising facts about scorpions while getting ready for this visit with you. They're surprising to me, uh, and clearly they're they're no surprise to you, but I want to mention one of them right up front, the idea that some scorpions can hiss. (laughs) That is true, yeah. Some scorpions can hiss. Um, Probably all scorpions communicate signals along acoustic channels. Um, because pretty much all arachnids do. But the thing about it is it's acoustic signals that we wouldn't ordinarily hear. Um, they're acoustic signals that are intended for scorpions to communicate with each other. And typically they're transmitted through the ground, through the substrate that they're standing on, because their ears, unlike ours, which pick up uh, signals that are sent over airwaves, tr- pick up signals that are transmitted through the ground through whatever they're standing on. They have little slits in their feet um, and they have a a structure underneath their body that looks kind of like a pair of combs uh, that pick up, they're really, really sensitive and they pick up vibratory signals. And so scorpions, they do oftentimes this sort of juddering um, to communicate with each other where they shake their body, uh, particularly during mating season. Uh, to communicate that they're l- out looking for love, uh, and re- otherwise they can be cannibalistic, so so they have to, to to take care. But in a few scorpion species, they've also evolved a mechanism for communicating with would-be predators, uh, and would-be predators are often things like small mammals, rodents, um, perhaps even some reptiles, and those sorts of animals typically hear acoustic signals over the airwaves like we do. And so we're able to hear this hissing noise. And there's two primary ways that it's that it's produced. It's, it's evolved a few different times. Um, and so it's produced in different parts of the body. But in, in some scorpions, it's produced by scraping the stinger over the base of the tail. And it creates kind of like a rasping noise. Um, and in another group of scorpions, it's produced by by scraping those combs that I told you about that pick up vibratory signals on their on the on the bottom of their stomach. Um, 
like you can call us underside of a scorpion's stomach <laughs> and they they sort of rub it against uh the the, the surface of their body there and it's it kind of acts like a stick and washboard mechanism so um they have these tiny little granules on their on their surface of their body and they rub those combs over it and it also creates kind of it's really sounds sort of like a hissing like a kind of noise well, you've just described it in a way that leads me to believe you've actually heard it yourself. I have, yeah, yes, indeed. I one of one of the best parts about my job is, unlike your experience of being terrified when you saw a scorpion out in the wild, uh, I get to travel the world looking for scorpions. How many hissing scorpions are we talking about? Like dozens of these things, or is this a rare experience for even you? Well, there are about about 12 or so species that that are capable of making some sort of hissing noise out of the 2500 that we've been able to document scientifically so far uh, as living on earth today so um rare for sure uh but perhaps not as common as as you'd expect depending on where you live in the world now i mentioned two surprises for me in this as i've been learning and, and trying to get ready to to talk about something that to me just kind of I'm going to tell you I'm not comfortable talking about scorpions because they scare me. Um, I, that's that's probably what most people feel. <laughs> but the idea that in their evolution, that these things have a watery past, they 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 come from the seas. Indeed, yeah, they were they were like the kings of the sea, or at least their ancestors were. Let's talk about the the evolution going way back and where these almost began. I mean, they didn't begin with eight legs and two pincher arms. They clearly began from something far more simple than that. But let's let's start with something that would have resembled a scorpion, that we would have recognized in the ocean. It would have been pretty big. It would have. Um, so, th so the ancestors of modern-day scorpions, the, the marine ancestors, were this group of organisms called Eurypterids, or sea scorpions. And to be quite frank, they looked almost exactly like modern-day scorpions. They, they did have um, eight legs, eight pairs of walking legs that they used to kind of walk along the bottom of the ocean floor. They had two big primary claws up in front, just like modern day scorpions. And they had a tail, although in the case of Eurypterids, the tail wasn't always ending in a stinger. Um, we only see the stinger starting to appear around the time that scorpions emerged onto land. And, and these modern day scorpions look almost exactly like the version of scorpions that that became amphibious that first started coming out of the ocean and and temporarily walking along the side probably of, of ancient riverbeds uh while hunting for food and they were huge uh in the case of 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 the ones that that we know were probably the earliest to come onto land they were probably about a meter in size and so what we think is that they were coming up onto riverbanks as a way to access spawning fish. Uh, just like grizzlies do today, they come up into, into rivers as the fish are spawning up river. We think that these ancient scorpions, these sea scorpions, were coming up along the banks of the river, leaving behind trackways, which we can observe in the, in the rock record, in the fossil record today, and hunting fish. So they were like the, the Cretaceous version of grizzly bears. And they left fossils behind? I mean, do we have, have we found a, a fossilized large scorpion that emerged from out of the it, sea or just their tracks? Indeed, we have both the fossils of the, the organisms themselves as well as fossils of their tracks, which led, which is how we have evidence that they were coming up on the land and about the time that they made that transition from living entirely in the ocean to, to partly living on land and then fully living on land. Well, you, do, you, do, also, you, you don't get to see those when you go to a, like a dinosaur museum. Nobody shows you a fossilized large scorpion. There are indeed like some museums that have fossil scorpions. So if, if you've ever been to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, um, they have a fossil scorpion out on display. It's not a gigantic one because it was a fully terrestrialized version. So it was just living on land, but it's a beautiful specimen and it's, it's out on display in one of their, one of their cases. It's, it's marvelous. No, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You were about to say something. I was going to say that, that, uh, in addition to, to actual fossils of these animals, um, we can see evidence of their ancestry just in their anatomy. Uh, for example, all modern scorpions have internalized gills that we call book lungs. And that's the way that they breathe today. They basically just took a gill, if you can imagine um, how the gills of a, of a fish look as they're opening their, 
their um, their their opercula and breathing in air, you can kind of see those flaps of their gills. It kind of looks almost like that, just miniaturized. So they've taken gills that they used to have to breathe to absorb oxygen out of the water, and they've smushed them inside of their body, um, compacted them together so that the pages of it really kind of look like you're looking at the side of a book and there's a little bit of space in between each of those pages which allows greater surface area for them to absorb oxygen uh, and it really functions exactly the same as a gill just breathing in air um, taking in oxygen from the air rather than taking in oxygen from the water so so we see evidence in addition to the fossils we see evidence in their modern day anatomy so i'm trying to envision this and these breathing apparati on, on these scorpions, they're not actually slits like the opening that gets into the gills. They, they don't open up to the to the air or? They do. Yeah. It's, it is just like a slit. It's like essentially if you were to take a lung and compress a, a gill, sorry, and compress it together where each surface area of the gill looks like a page of a book and you okay. stick it inside of a little like slotted hole that has an opening to the to the outside world. That's how they breathe and and they just passively respire. So they're not actually like taking in lungfuls of air like we do. They just allow the the air to, to pass over the pages of that book lung and they absorb oxygen in that way. Um, which is actually one of the things that, that limits their their maximum size today because the, the oxygen levels are, are lower than they were historically. So they can't grow as big. Well, let's continue talking about the anatomy of these scorpions. And I'm talking now about the land creatures, the kind we, we know today. Uh, I'm a little puzzled by the fact, I mean, I, I had heard that they were arachnids or in the, related to, to spiders. And so that immediately says to me, eight legs. But is it kind of cheating to have 10 limbs? Because they've got extra, they've got those two pincher arm thingies. That's a really great question. Um, so you're right in, in saying that they have eight legs and they do like all arachnids have eight legs. Um, and also all arachnids have some version of those pincher things. Uh, in the case of spiders, they actually look like a little miniature leg up at the front of their body. Uh, and that, and in, in the case of spiders, it's, it's evolved to be used for um, reproduction rather than grabbing onto things. Uh, in the case of scorpions, they have, have evolved to be little claws. So they look just like lobster claws, right? And so they use them just in that way. They grab onto to prey or potentially um, use them to pinch at, at would-be predators. And I have to ask this question. This does go back to the ocean environment. The only thing I can think of in the ocean that, to my mind, resembles the shape of a scorpion is a lobster. No relation? Yeah. No? Some relation? There is a really distant relation. Um, they're both arthropods. And so um, that means that they have jointed appendages. And you can see if you ever look really close up at a scorpion or a spider or an insect or a lobster that they have joints uh, in their legs that allow them to articulate their legs. But the, the, the funny thing is, is that lobsters are more closely related to insects than they are to scorpions. Uh, they, have, they share a really distant common ancestor, which gives them their basic body shape. And probably the reason that they look so similar is both of them have kind of retained this, this deep ancestral shape. Whereas in other groups of, of organisms that are related, they've modified that shape a lot through time. That shape has become uh, more and more different from the ancestor, whereas in, in, in scorpions and lobsters, they just kind of stayed the same. It was working for them. Now, Lauren Esposito, I don't know that people are supposed to try to relate to animals, but when I do relate to animals, it's generally to creatures with only two eyes. And so I have a bit of a challenge when I'm thinking about spiders or, or bees or wasps or, or multiple, multiple eyes. Let's talk about scorpion eyes. Sure. So scorpions have, have a number of eyes, but, in, but what's really interesting about their eyes is that they're arranged in a triangle. So they have three sets of eyes. Uh, in the middle of their head, they have two primary eyes that, they, that are sort of set up on little turrets that they use to look out, um, giving them pretty good distance vision. And then in the front of each corner of their head, they have another set of small eyes. And those eyes are really probably just sensitive to light or dark, but collectively they're able to use these eyes to look up into the celestial body up into the sky at night and look at the stars and we think that in many cases particularly scorpions that live in featureless landscapes like sand dunes or salt flats that they're using those that set of of three different groupings of eyes 
to triangulate their position relative to the position of the stars. So it's kind of like humans using a GPS. Our cell phone that's in our pocket looks up into the sky, so to speak, and identifies three different cell towers. And the way that it figures out where we are when we're using like some kind of map app is it assumes that we're in the center of those three places. It triangulates our position. And as we move, it attaches to new um, cell towers and assumes that we've moved because now we're in the, in the middle of the, the three that it's currently tracking. And that's what this, we think that the scorpions are doing with their three sets of eyes. They're looking up into the celestial universe, up into the stars that are particularly active on moonless nights where the stars would be most clear and they're moving around their environment by navigating through starlight. Now, long ago here on the show, I spoke with somebody who was an expert on dung beetles, and I understand that certain experiments were undertaken to try to demonstrate that there is this navigation by by starlight. And as I remember, they put these little barriers, these little hats on these beetles to yeah. obstruct their vision. Are you, are you familiar with this? How they, they kind of make them so that they're blind to the sky and then they'd be yeah, lost? Yeah, they give them blindfolds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Has the same sort of thing been done to, with scorpions to demonstrate that there's this connection to the starlight? It has not yet. And in fact, that's one of the, the one of my favorite things about studying scorpions is that we really are behind the curve of what we think we should know. So it might be surprising to learn that in scorpions, we're actually in the middle of this renaissance of discovery. Uh, in just the last hundred years, the number of scorpions that have been documented, the number of species that have of scorpions that have been documented by science has changed by an entire order of magnitude. Just a hundred years ago, we'd only discovered uh, somewhere in the range of 250 scorpion species. And now we've discovered over 2,500 and there's dozens of new species being formally described by scientists every year. And so the fact that we're still in this discovery phase just of the species means that there's very little that we've discovered yet about their natural history and ecology and the way that they interact with the environment uh, and the way that their anatomy functions. And so I, that's, that's my favorite thing about studying scorpions. And, and, and I understand that for many people, the thought of studying scorpions might sound creepy um, most people would think of scorpions in, 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 the, in the realm of terrifying or creepy or, or downright disgusting. But the fact that there's still so much to learn about something that lives almost in every ecosystem on Earth, to me, is incredible. There's still much for us to learn in this segment because we haven't even gotten to the venom, to the, to the tail of the creature yet. We'll get to that in, in a moment here. Time for a short break here on Constant Wonder. We're visiting with Lauren Esposito. She is Assistant Curator and Schlinger Chair of Ar Arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. More on scorpions. Stay tuned. I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. Lauren Esposito is with us. She's assistant curator of arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. We're talking about scorpions. Lauren, I, I, I want to just stick a little bit longer with this navigation by starlight thing. Is this speculative? Is it? Are you like 90% sure they do this? If they haven't done the little test with the blindfolds, how do we know? Well, one of the best pieces of evidence that we have is based on the anatomy of scorpions that live in featureless environments. Um, so what we've, what we've uh, documented through time is that scorpions that live in featureless environments, when compared to their closest relative that lives in an environment that has like shrubbery or trees or, or rocks that they would be able to navigate by landmarks, so to speak, we find that there's an exaggeration of the shape of the triangle of, that their eyes create. And that, that's the, our strongest evidence to date that they're able to use celestial navigation. Um, another sort of piece of corroborative evidence is that we know that, and this is through documentation, that scorpions almost always come out on moonless nights and their activity peaks uh, throughout the month on moonless nights, which is, a couple of advantages. First, it makes it easier to see the stars. Uh, and so if you have relatively simple eyes that really only are detecting the presence or absence of light, it would be best to see these sources of light millions of, and billions of miles away to come out when they're most visible. The second advantage that it affords them is it makes them harder to see. Um, predators that would be looking for them would probably be mostly using 
eyesight. And so by coming out on moonless nights, they'd be able to avoid predators to the greatest extent possible. Now, speaking of things that give off light, uh, moving from the stars now down to the scorpions themselves, they're not bioluminescent, are they? But, but they glow? They do glow, so to speak. Uh, they, they fluoresce under ultraviolet light. So ultraviolet light is like a, a black, what we oftentimes call a black light. It's sort of a purple-hued light. And scorpions have a, a pigment in their cuticle, which is their, their skeleton. They have a skeleton on the outside of their body rather than the inside of their body, like all invertebrates or many invertebrates. And they, this pigment in their exoskeleton absorbs ultraviolet light excites the light beam itself and then emits light at a higher frequency that's in the visible spectrum range for for human eyes and so when we see the ultraviolet light after it's been fluoresced off of the scorpion it looks green or or sort of a toxic sludge color if you, if you will <laughs> so you've been out and about with lights that's this when you're looking for these things you always have a light in your pocket I do. And and actually, like earlier when I mentioned that we're in the midst of this scorpion renaissance, that's one of the driving factors. Uh, scorpions are nocturnal animals, which means that they only come out at night. And so historically, they've been pretty hard to find. And, and one of the ways that we found them was just by like turning over rocks or just being really lucky. Now we can go out when they're active and we have a tool that allows us to spot them from like several feet away, which is the ultraviolet light. Now let's talk about their range because I'm I'm here's a third surprise for me actually uh, that to, to think of them in the high high peaks of of mountain ranges that is something I had not expected to hear I I think of these as desert creatures and apparently I'm wrong about that well they you're not wrong because they are desert creatures but I think that most people are surprised to learn that scorpions exist in almost every ecosystem on Earth outside of the Arctic zones the Arctic and the Antarctic. So they don't like any any places that freeze for significant parts of the year, but you can find them in the Alps, in the Andes, in the Himalayas. Um, they're in tropical rainforests. They're in deserts, of course, all over the world. Um, but they're also in, in places that you might not expect, like one of the scorpions that we have here in the San Francisco Bay Area is the Pacific Forest Scorpion, which exists in, in almost every forest habitat in California. A tropical, you said, and now I'm thinking about forest canopy and trying to navigate by starlight, and that would be a bit of an obstacle. But once you're in the tropical jungle, you're lost anyway, right? Indeed, you're you're almost always lost. But uh, we did actually make a really exciting discovery about scorpions uh, that we that uh, my master student Aaron Goodman published last year um, about scorpions that live in the tropics, and and in particular, what he was able to document. Uh, was that some scorpions living in tropical ecosystems have evolved to live in the canopy. Uh, and one of the reasons that, that we are hypothesizing that they've done that is to escape other species of scorpions that are much larger and live on the ground. Um, these canopy living scorpions are super elongate, which allows them for a, to have greater balance up in the canopy. And you almost never find them uh, lower than five meters in the, in the trees. So they're always up, up in the tops of the trees. Well, if they are just about everywhere, except for those really frigid zones, then I'm thinking to myself, um, we've got to talk about venom because that's the thing that is frightening. There's some kind of relationship between the size of their pincher claws and their their, their, their toxicity, I guess. There is. There's sort of a. It's. There's never a one to one. I think in, in almost anything in biology, when we when we try to make up rules, some organism comes along that thwarts those rules, and the same is true for scorpions. But in general, there's a rule of thumb that gives you a good sense of whether or not something is going to be very toxic to humans or not. All scorpions are venomous. They all have a venom gland in the end of their tail and a structure called the stinger, um, and that venom gland allows them to eject venom out through a, a sting, which is essentially a hypodermic needle um, that would release venom toxins into whatever the recipient of that stinger is. And the best rule of thumb is that if scorpions have really slender hands and either a very robust or very long tail, so either like a big fat tail or a very long tail, then chances are pretty good that they're more toxic to humans. Whereas if they have really, really big claws and their tail is sort of s small or not very long or not very thick, um, they're probably less toxic to humans. And the reason for that is that 
these scorpions with really big claws are mostly using their claws to defend themselves and to capture prey. And so their their venoms are are less developed. They they're pretty basic. They're mostly just enzymes and and salts and other things that would help them digest their prey rather than neuropeptides which we can talk about um that that are intended to cause pain or to to uh, render a prey item um incapable of moving now talk to us if you would about something that i've learned that they may have the ability or some species may have the ability to inject different types of venom depending on the circumstance whether they're defending themselves or whether they're attacking Right. So all scorpions, virtually all scorpions, every scorpion that we've documented what's in their venom so far, which is really just about 10% of all scorpions. Um, so there's still much, much to learn. But for all the ones that where we've documented what's contained in their venom, it's a cocktail. It's a cocktail of multiple kinds of things. Some of those things, as I mentioned, are salts and enzymes for, for breaking down tissues. But they also contain all sorts of, of um, neuropeptide toxins. Um, and what these neuropeptides are, are essentially a, a, a molecule that goes in and, and interrupts the way that your nerves signal each other. And so either it blocks your nerves from sending signals to, from nerve to nerve so that the signal never reaches your brain, or it intercepts those nerves and causes them to fire when they're not supposed to, it causes them to send a signal up to your brain, telling your brain that your hand's on fire when really nothing's happening to your hand. Um, and so these, these neuropeptides can exist in, in many different forms in the same individual scorpion. So one scorpion might have 200 components to its venom cocktail. And there's some really strong evidence that suggests that given the circumstance, they're using different parts of that cocktail. Um, these neuropeptides are relatively expensive in terms of metabolism for the scorpion to produce. So they want to try to use the least expensive cocktail given the setting. After capturing prey, they may only need to eject enzymes and salts. We call this sometimes the pre-venom. Whereas if they're trying to defend their lives because they think that they're about to be eaten, they may wanna use the more expensive, uh, larger, more metabolically costly neuropeptides. And so they'll eject all their venom in their cocktail. Uh, and so the, the best evidence for this is, is in some scorpions that produce uh, a pre-venom droplet when they're excited. So when you uh, give them a prey item, they kind of eject a tiny little droplet of venom that just sits on the end of their sting. We can collect that droplet, analyze what's inside of it, and then collect the, the full uh, sting delivery and see what's inside of that and, and compare the results. You knew I was going to ask it, but talk to me about being stung. <laughs> I think that that's like the number one question people of course it want is. to know. <laughs> because everybody's scared of scorpions because they're scared of getting stung by scorpions. Um, and that's with good reason. I think I think that oftentimes arachnids, so spiders and scorpions, are, are really maligned, much more maligned than there's cause for them to be. Because the reality is in both of those things, like fewer than 1% of all species are are harmful to humans. Most of them are completely harmless. They can't do anything to us. But they're so other. They're so different. They move differently. They're active at different times. They always seem to be lurking in the dark, waiting to jump out and get you. And so we're, we're, we're innately just scared of them. And when we learn that they're venomous, the number one thing on our mind is how much damage can they do? And I've been stung exactly one time Many of my uh, scorpion biologist colleagues have been stung many times, but I try to be really careful because I don't enjoy getting stung. It's not, not anything that <laughs> is ever pleasant. But for most scorpion species, what it's going to feel like is getting your finger poked by a thumbtack and then maybe a little bit of stinging because they've ejected some salts and enzymes into your finger. Those salts and enzymes aren't really active on your body, but it's the same if you get a cut and then touch something salty, like it hurts, the salt stings. And so that's gonna be the primary feeling and it will subside within an hour. And and that's the kind of scorpion that I've been stung by. I'm very happy to report, uh, nothing happened. It stung me as I was handing it from, as I was passing it from one first grader to another because it was a completely harmless species of scorpion that's very docile and virtually never stings. 
but after being held by about a hundred first graders, it had had <laughs> enough and and let me know. Uh, so I returned it back to to where we found it. Well, this was not one of those. I mean, I just have to talk about the dark foreboding, you know, the apocalyptic scorpion. There's, I hear Absolutely. stories, I hear out of like Saudi Arabia in the deserts that you, you get struck by one of those things, you're a goner. And that is true for, for about a dozen species uh, worldwide. It's a major health concern. And it is something that can kill you if you don't receive treatment. The good news is for for most virtually all scorpions that are lethal to humans, we've developed antivenoms that have delivered in a medical environment result in almost zero fatalities. So almost nobody dying um, if they're able to get the medical care that they need to treat the scorpion sting. Wow. So just like Um, with snakes and antivenom, they've done the same for scorpions. They have. And we we know that in Mexico, um, historically, they're, they're... Mexico is a, a real hot spot, especially northwestern Mexico is a real hot spot for for very venomous scorpions. And um, we know historically that there was as many as a thousand people a year that died from scorpion envenomation in that region. But now that numbers drop significantly and and is really um, no longer a concern because we're able to get these people to the hospital and get them antivenom. Well, in a way, I can almost imagine myself having gone down a similar path to you because as I was reading about your background, I, I saw my own childhood again where I would take a jar with a nail polish remover and I'd capture different insects and put them in there. I don't even know where I learned to do this, but it was mostly about butterflies for me, actually. I was trying to capture butterflies. You did that too as a kid? You, your mother was a biologist and you went collecting yeah. with that nail polish remover. I did. I went collecting. It was mostly in my garden. Uh, I would flip over all the pavers and, and my my first love, which now I recognize is kind of a gross one, was earwigs and cockroaches because that was the main <laughs> thing that I was finding living in, 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 in an urban area and flipping over the pavers along the side of my house. Um, there was lots of cockroaches and earwigs and crickets and and I loved them. I would pick them up in my three or four year old hands and deliver them inside to my mom uh, who had had gone to school for biology. My father was a veterinarian as well. And and so I came from a real sort of biology household. And my mom wasn't upset that I was bringing her cockroaches, but she was a little perturbed by the fact that they were alive and they could escape in the house. So she taught me how to make what you described as, as, as and what we call in, in entomology is a killing jar, which is a, a jar that contains some kind of chemical that releases a gas and um, humanely euthanizes insects in a way that, that causes them very little distress. And so I learned to make a killing jar and I would keep insect collections in my room in old egg cartons. Uh, and I think that was sort of my, my first on-road into becoming an, an entomologist and an arachnologist. Well, if somebody were to want to go looking for scorpions, give us a little advice. Uh, clearly at nighttime, you say they're nocturnal. And so I would imagine uh, going out at night and uh, having that light. But we need a few more clues than just that. There's there's going to be ideal habitats that we should be looking in. Sure. So um, one thing to know is that most scorpion species uh, don't like humans. So if you're living in an urban area, the further that you can get away from people, the better. Um, so try to find a, a nature trail or, or a natural park in your area. You can pick up a blacklight, a portable blacklight. It looks just like a little flashlight, oftentimes at a local hardware store or online. If you just search UV flashlight, you'll be able to find one. And they cost about 5 to $10. And equipped with that blacklight and on a nature trail, as long as you live Um, On the west coast of the United States, as long as you live south of um, Ontario, you'll be fine. And on the east coast of of the United States, as long as you live south of Virginia, you'll be able to find scorpions. Um, Scorpions aren't really in the the northeast United States, and and they don't really get north of, like, Vancouver, probably, in Canada. Uh, You'll be able to find them. So... Go out, walk around, take a blacklight, and you'll, I guarantee if it's on a, especially on a warm night, so in spring or summer, you'll be able to find scorpions. That stinger thing, is that just their last resort? They're probably very timid. They're probably retiring and stay in, in the dark crack somewhere. They'll usually be out sitting sort of on vegetation or on the ground. 
they are not super active, so they don't run around a lot. And the most likely response that they'll have to seeing you is retreating into their burrow, into the hole that they're living in. Um, they don't jump, so you don't have to worry about them jumping on you. And they are, really, for the most part, really non-aggressive, but I wouldn't recommend picking them up. I would recommend safely observing them without touching them. And you mentioned the word burrow now. And before we uh, finish here, I've got to talk about that because apparently there's some very strange spiral shape to their burrow. Yeah, scorpions, not all scorpions are burrowing. Some of them are what we call errant, which means they just sort of ramble around looking for like a crack crack or a crevice to hide in when it becomes daylight. Um, but some scorpions create these really, really intricate burrows. And, and so they'll dig them out of, out of the ground, out of the dirt. Um, any kind of dirt you can find scorpions digging burrows in. So sand, mud, clay. And um, as they excavate that burrow, sometimes they create these really intricate shapes that are spirals. Sometimes the spirals extend like several feet down into the ground. Sometimes they have sort of false uh, ends to, to trick predators that would be trying to find them inside of their burrow and little cavities where they can rest in during the day. And they can be really these intricate, beautiful spirals uh, that, that we've, we've poured casts into to rec- record the shape of. Ah, it's just amazing. Well, Lauren, uh, thank you so much for being with us to talk about scorpions. I did mention I wanted to take opportunity to talk about something else that you're quite passionate about. And this is you were a co-founder of 500 Queer Scientists. And I went online to look at that and see what that's about. It's a visibility campaign. Explain that to us. Sure. A few years ago, I, I realized that generally in science, what oftentimes people think or have an impression of is that we should leave our personal identities when we walk into the lab. And for many people, depending on what their identity is, that that can be exceptionally difficult, particularly if that identity um, means that the color of your skin is different or that your gender is different from, from the traditional representation in science, which is a white male. And so for for the historic representation, it was very easy to leave all of your identity at home and come into the lab and just do science. But the reality is, is for many people that that's just impossible. And not only is it impossible, but it's actually detrimental to science itself. We know based on analysis of, of every scientific publication in history that the greatest advancements in science have been made by groups of working scientists that have different identities, so diverse working groups. Most often when these diverse working groups come together, everybody brings a diversity of perspective with them that allows them to think about and approach problems in a different way. So in that sense, it's actually benefits science and society for us to bring our whole identities with us when we come to work. A few years ago, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's explained so well that just in the sheer interest of science, uh, what you have in, in in your background, what you have at your disposal in terms of whatever has formed your perspective, is going to maybe open uh, doors and windows to see things that other people just aren't going to see. Absolutely, I think that that identity is a doorway for science rather than uh, a, a a hindrance to science, and and so whatever your background is. Your personal experiences and your perspective are unique and um, will really benefit society and science as a whole by by bringing them and, and using them to evaluate and examine your findings and the ways that you're asking questions. And And so that really led me to, to have this realization that the LGBTQ identity is one that's really hidden in scientific culture. It's one that we're expected never to talk about. Uh, and it's one that, that's not celebrated. In fact, it's often something that 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 is reacted with in, with a question, which is, why should I care about your gender identity or your sexuality in the lab? I'm here just to do science. And that's, I think, the most common um, roadblock that's in the pathway of people that have the LGBTQ identity and are working in science. And it's something that, that has often kept kept people out or caused them to change their pathway as they moved through their career, moving away from science and into other fields. But that diversity and that perspective is something that we need. It's something that we should value. And so I created a visibility campaign about two and a half years ago now 
called 500 Queer Scientists, which was a way for uh, people with the LGBTQ identity who were also working or studying in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics um, degrees or careers could celebrate their personal identity in the context of the kind of science that they're doing. Um, really bringing those two parts of themselves together in the same room for the first time. Uh, and this is a, a visibility campaign that's primarily through social media. So we uh, are active on Twitter and Instagram, and we, we have a website where we've where people can submit their own stories. We've gathered over 1,400 stories of people from all over the world and really all places in their career, ranging from students all the way up to people who are directors of major research institutes or deans of universities. All of them just celebrating their identity in the context of their contributions to science and to society. So in those two and a half years, have you had any positive feedback coming where you've gotten a story of somebody who might have been dissuaded from pursuing science in their profession, but your visibility campaign led them to persevere, to find support, and to, and, and to keep with it and, and to go into science? We get those kinds of stories weekly, if not daily. Um, so often we have people that send us private messages, just letting us know how much the campaign has meant to them, or they post publicly saying something along the lines of, of until I saw this visibility campaign or until I saw this message from this person in relation to the campaign, I questioned whether this was a place for me. And I think that that's something that so many people in this community feel and have felt. And the one thing that I want people to take away from this campaign is that there is a place for you in science and science needs you. Well, to make the any professional space more welcoming and, and more supportive, that's just a tremendous undertaking, and I commend you for that. And such a pleasure to get to know you and spend time with you. Lauren Esposito, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Lauren Esposito is Assistant Curator and Schlinger Chair of Arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. She's a scorpion expert, and from what I've learned today, I shouldn't really be so afraid of those little creatures. Neither should you. Use the requisite caution and go out at night with one of those lights. I'm going to do it myself, and with any luck, I'll find them. Now, it may be okay to proceed with caution on your discovery of scorpions, but unless you are a trained expert like our next guest... I strongly recommend you not try to milk a venomous snake. More on that when we come back to Constant Wonder. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder today. I'm Marcus Smith. Let's talk about hazard pay, shall we? Our next guest's job is to milk venomous snakes. And to learn more about all of this, because it's very important that we know about this, well, it's, at the very least, it's, it's quite exciting to think about it. Constant Wonders' Eric Schultzka spoke with Carl Barden. Barden is owner and director of Medtoxin Venom Laboratories and uh, also director of the Reptile Discovery Center in Florida. Lots of our time is spent on basic husbandry, taking care of the animals, cleaning and feeding and thing, and making sure the animals are well cared for. And then about a third to a half of my day is spent actually catching the snake and having him bite into a covered receptacle, if you will, and collecting that venom. You know, I usually start the morning out. I'll do 30 or 40 rattlesnakes, that kind of thing, when I'm fresh and I feel good and just had a cup of coffee and that whole thing. And then I move into coral snakes and cobras and that kind of stuff as the day wears on. And when we're open to the public, there's a rotating venom program schedule. So there are four or five species handled in front of the public a couple of times a day. We're open to the public four days a week, typically, or three and a half days a week. But now, because of COVID, we are closed uh, probably until 2021. When you're, when you're open to the public, you're open through glass, I hope. Right. So okay. the public comes in, it's a reptile zoo, if you will, and they're watching, they're looking into the laboratory seated, and there is a narrated program occurring that's telling them about the snakes while they're being caught and their venom is being collected, and they're watching that process. You, you can actually also see that on YouTube. There are videos that people have, have posted out there of that process and, and what we call the venom program. But whether that's happening in front of the public or not, it's a constant process. We have about 600 snakes on the venom line right now. We typically try to handle about 300 snakes a week, 
And like I said, that falls out to 50 or 100, four days a week kind of thing. Uh, you have these stacked in, uh, look like plastic boxes. Right. They're, they're commercial r- r- snake racks, if you will. They are built to house large numbers of snakes in a reasonable amount of space. The snake just lives in this box? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. A lot of people ask about that. And I always think it's a great question. And we always kind of say, don't think like a mammal, because that kind of skews it a little bit. And then I always say, don't think like a person, because that really messes up. So snakes, dark, quiet, warm, food, water, and another snake. So when you see a snake in the wild, he, he is not out moving just to exercise or to enjoy himself. He's moving for some purpose. He's either looking for cover or he's looking for food or water or he's looking for another snake. And were those things furnished in a very small area, he, he wouldn't be out moving because it's that, that time to a snake is pretty taxing. It's dangerous to be out and about. Yeah. And so we always think people say, well, how could he possibly be happy in that little box? And we always think if we built a cage that was as big as the building, but we gave him this one little hiding area, the chances of him spending the better part of his time in that hiding area are in fact very good because snakes, the reason you don't see them much is they prefer to be dark and quiet and hidden and secure unless they have to raise their body temperature or go find food. Or So when those things are all met, they we think, to be fair, a snake has not spoken to me just yet, but we think that they're very content. They I guess you're not a Slytherin, huh? No, maybe going forward, right? <laughs> All right. So I was really surprised at how compliant they are. You uh, you pull this box out, you reach in with these little special hook things, like little like stick devices. Correct. Then yeah. you then you kind of lift them out, and they're just kind of like hanging out. That's exactly right. And we try to make that process very non-combative. We, we don't want him being frightened. We don't want to be beating him up with the snake hook. We want that process to be seamless and hopefully not especially threatening to him. Snakes do not like to be restrained or picked up. That's an unfortunate uh, part of our job because it has to happen. We don't hurt him, but he doesn't want to be picked up. He doesn't understand it. But we try and make that process fairly seamless and at all costs not injurious to the snake or, of course, to myself. And I noticed that your assistant uses a what looks like a long vinyl pad, padded device at the end of a pole. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what it is. It's a big, soft pad to immobilize that snake body would be the equivalent of somebody lying on top of you with a pillow so that when they picked up a certain part of you, you couldn't thrash and hurt yourself. The parallel that came to mind for me is that with a cat, if you hold them by the scruff of their neck, they kind of go into kitten mode. Yeah, I've seen that. Okay, right. So similar. And again, you know, you're not doing any damage to him, and that's the whole idea there. Right. Okay. So then she she holds you. She holds the snake down to immobilize him, and then you actually grab him right below the head. Right. So gently press his head again, so he can't move, and then I come in and pick him up right behind his head. Uh, I'm holding his neck firmly, but not hurting him again if I can help it. And um, he then is kind of steered toward this receptacle where he's going to bite. And he bites it because. Well, most of the time, again, he's agitated. Even if some of these snakes have been doing this for 15 years now, they've been on the venom line, but, and it happens once a month or every two weeks, every 14 days, every 28 days. It depends on the snake. But he's agitated. He doesn't want to be picked up. He doesn't want to be. And so when you pick him up, he's thinking, what has got me and why? And if I present something to bite, um, oftentimes he will bite and release venom. Not always. You know, that process is his choice, so to speak. And sometimes they don't want to bite, and if he doesn't want to bite, I just put him away for two weeks. If he doesn't want to give me any venom, I do the same. I put him away for two weeks. We don't squeeze his head or massage his gland, or, but we'll pick him up, let him bite into that receptacle. Sometimes we'll tickle him a little bit or <clears throat> squeeze his tail a little to hopefully agitate him to get him to bite because we're a production facility, right? So we're about producing large amounts right. of snake venom. They've struck this uh, little receptacle, which is has some kind of like, oh, what would you call it? Uh, That's a clear plastic. It's a clear soft plastic on top, uh, equivalent to like a commercial shower curtain. And he has uh, ejected the venom thinking that he's bitten something. Right. And uh, describe the venom to me. 
Uh, Venom's kind of interesting. It, it it's usually has some kind of a color, yellow to it, or white, or uh, amber color, that kind of thing. Venom is viscous. It's uh, kind of syrupy and sticky. Um, and snake venom, of course, is this fascinating uh, concoction of all these little peptides and proteins and enzymes, all of which have a really active biological role. They might destroy a cell wall or bind to a receptor site on a muscle. Or, um, so, so, so there are all these really, in some cases, dozens of fascinating little bioactive molecules in a given venom. Explain to me how venom is turned into antivenom. Yeah, so that process is uh, its actually reasonably unsophisticated. It's been around in its current form, uh, oh gosh, for kind of over a century, although we have managed to clean it up and purify it a little bit over the course of that time. But um, So they take the snake venom and dilute it, uh, sometimes significantly, and they begin to inject that snake venom into either a horse or a sheep, horse were the historical precedent. That was always the animal they used in the old days for all kinds of antibody work because he was big and you could inject a horse with an antigen and it would create an antibody maybe without killing the animal as opposed to like a rabbit or something. And then later on, uh, a lot of the modern antivenoms have moved to sheep. They tend to be less allergenic in people and sheep sometimes build better antibody to small molecules. And so some snake venoms um, are really little uh, molecules, and you want to build, some of them are very toxic, neurotoxins, or, and you want to make sure that the animal is building an antibody to that dangerous molecule or toxin in the snake venom. So sheep seem to do a really good job of that. So, so they inject these dilute venoms over a period of time. It's not hurting the horse or the sheep. In fact, they take great care of those immunology animals, and then they draw off the sheep or the horse's blood a little bit, just like you give blood, and they separate out that antibody. That's what antivenom is. It's either an equine, a horse antibody, or a sheep antibody that has been made to either a snake venom or, in some cases, a number of snake venoms. Carl Barden, he's owner and director of Medtoxin Venom Laboratories and the Reptile Discovery Center in Florida. He was speaking with Eric Schultzka. It was human vipers, human scorpions, that Hollywood cast in hundreds of classic black and white films in the 40s and 50s. The film genre is known as film noir. And here's a couple of things you can learn about dealing with these deadly critters. Be careful whom you fall in love with and call the police if you find a body. We're going to talk to the Tsar of Noir next on Constant Wonder. ¶¶ 